You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So if you've uh, been with us for any amount of time over the past four or five months, I guess, maybe more, uh, we've been going through Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians. And it's a book that was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century to about a five-year-old church in a city in Greece, present-day Greece. And, and Paul was writing in response to a number of local issues that the Corinthians were having. And so we've seen over the first 15 chapters, Paul addressing all of these different local issues. The Corinthians were prone to act much more like Corinthians than they were to act like Christians. And so much of what Paul has written to this point has been calling the Christians in Corinth to put on the glory and honor and holiness of Christ. And so he's addressed issues like sexual purity, um, selflessness and, and sacrifice, avoiding pagan worship and eating food that's been offered to pagan gods. He's talked about how important it is that the Corinthians would believe in the resurrection. He's called them not to be divided against each other because that is something that they were prone to, to be divided, whether it was as a result of social status or wealth or the spiritual gifts they had been given or, or their placement in the church or their gender or their ability to be holy or their inability to be holy. They were divided. And so Paul has called them to unity and to love and to selflessness and to service and to care and to holiness over and over and over again. And so that's that's what Paul has been doing through the first 15 chapters. And we, as a church, have reached the end of the letter where we have heard the instruction that Paul gave to the church in Corinth and have over and over again tried to apply it to ourselves. It's a letter that leads the Christian to be introspective. Am I worshiping other gods like the Corinthians were? Am I walking in promiscuity like the Corinthians were? Am I divided among the brothers and sisters like the Corinthians were? And so we've considered questions like this. Have I put my full hope in the resurrection of Jesus? Or, or have I doubted like the Corinthians have? And so we've reached the end of this book. And, and, and for many of us, if not all of us, it's been challenging. There have been things that Paul has written that have deeply convicted us where we felt called to a level of holiness that we didn't even feel that we could attain, or we've been called to a level of love for one another that we didn't think was possible for us. And so we've been challenged, and I'm sure some of our conversations in our neighborhood parish gatherings have been difficult, if not heated at times. And now we've reached the end of the book, and we get to a text that if we were reading 1 Corinthians at home, most of us would start reading chapter 16 and then we would skim through it as quickly as possible. Because basically what it seems like Paul is saying is, is he's tying up loose ends and he's handling business that doesn't relate to us 2,000 years and a hemisphere apart from what was going on. Prepare an offering for Jewish Christians in need. Take note of my travel plans, Paul writes. 
greet these people, honor those people, bye. Like, that's basically the gist of chapter 16, is Paul says, be generous to the Christians in Israel, and think about these different people, and hope to see you soon. And so we're tempted to think that there's nothing here for us, but But what we have to do when we come to a text like this is believe that what Paul wrote to Timothy in another letter, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for the church, we have to believe that that's true. We have to believe that there is profit for us. There is something for us to gain. There's things that we can learn from even chapter 16. And so this past week as I was studying, I I'm convinced that there are three major things that we can take away from this text. I'm sure that there are more, but there are three that we're going to address this morning. One of these things is so important that Paul will tell us that if we fail to embrace it, that we will even be accursed or damned. So let's let's give the text its attention. Let's give it the honor that it deserves. Let's give it the care that it deserves as God's word to God's people. The the first thing that we should consider is is given the introspective nature of 1 Corinthians, the, the call to examine ourselves both individually and corporately as a local church and the fact that that much of the letter is, is local business, how the church should operate, how the Sunday gathering should take place, how we should love one another. But then in chapter 16, Paul stops addressing primarily Corinthian issues. He doesn't go on and on anymore about how they should organize their Sunday gathering. He doesn't continue to tell them all of the ways that they need to walk in holiness. He's already done all these things. And and we as a church have already considered these things. But now that he has fully addressed all of the issues at hand in Corinth, he turns and begins talking about Christians all over the ancient world. He calls the Corinthians to set aside money for struggling Christians in Israel. He tells them about his visiting and ministering to Christians in Macedonia and Ephesus. He mentions the work of different Christians in Achaia and Asia. He mentions the names of Christians who do not belong to the Corinthian congregation. Christians all over the world, Aquila and Prissa are mentioned, and their church in their house in Asia. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus and Achaia are mentioned. The generosity of the church in Galatia is mentioned. And this is important for us to take note of because after Paul has spent 15 chapters and most recently he's expanded on the earth-shattering reality of the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of all people from the dead. This, this reality of the resurrection that changes the course of all history, that changes the reality of creation itself, he turns and reminds them that they in Corinth are not alone. That if the resurrection changes everything, that it changes everything everywhere, and there are Christians all over the world who are being affected by it. There are communities who are being overtaken by the glory of the resurrection. 
And so the two exhortations Paul gives the Corinthians in regards to Christians and the church at large all over the world are these. He says, first, be generous for their sake, and second, honor their faithfulness. Be generous for their sake and honor their faithfulness. And so likewise, we as a church ought to consider this. We can't miss the forest for the trees. It can be easy after going through 1 Corinthians for us to be all caught up in what we have to do now. Well, I have to be holier. I have to, I have to relate better to my brothers and sisters in my neighborhood parish. I need to, need to understand the resurrection more. I need to, to pursue the Holy Spirit's gifts more. And we can turn so introspective that we forget that what we're part of is something much bigger than us. As we step into this Advent season, a season in in which we consider God's generosity in giving us His Son, we must consider the work of the gospel taking place in other neighborhoods, other cities, other countries. And we must commit to being generous to them. In the next month, we're going to be invited into an Advent giving campaign in which which we're going to call all of our members to consider giving double, if not more, of what they usually give on a monthly basis so that we as a church can be doubly generous as a church, so that we can support the work of church planting in other neighborhoods in our city and in other countries in the world, so that we can support the gospel advancing in places that aren't just mantras. As we've considered the concept of laying down our rights for brother and sister and neighbor in 1 Corinthians, we also ought to consider laying down our rights to riches for the sake of the gospel going forth like a burning torch here in Montrose, but also in the Heights and in the Galleria and in Spring Branch and, and in the East End, in Paris, France, in Lagos, Nigeria, in Nosada, Costa Rica. To the very ends of the earth, we ought to be generous that this resurrection news, this good news of God's gospel might go forth in places that aren't just our neighborhood. We ought to consider with honor and dignity the names of those that we are aware of who are doing the work of God's kingdom in other places. Names like Carlos and Chelsea Rebriard. Names like Paul and Lindsay Ramsey. Names like Femi and Tosin Osonui. Danny and Maria Jose Valverde. Dell and Laura De La Hoyd. Countless other church planters. Countless other faithful families and missionaries and congregations in places apart from us. Church, the kingdom of God is much bigger than we are. It's just bigger than we are, and and that's not just good perspective for us, but it's good news. It's good news because God has chosen to reveal himself to a diverse and beautiful representation of his creation, that his good news would go forth to every corner of the earth, and his glory is expressed and revealed in a diverse church, in a global church, in a historic church. It's good news for us because it means that we're not alone. 
It means that we have tangible proof of what God is doing, and it's often easier to see that from a distance. Like, it's often easier to see the, the kind of things that God does in saving people when we hear stories about what's happening elsewhere, because it can be so easy to miss it in the day-to-day and in the local. It's easy to rejoice and to see that God really is at work when we hear of baptisms happening with our partners in France or Nigeria. Easier than it is sometimes when we consider people that we just have in our living rooms here in Montreal. It's good news and good perspective. It should be an encouragement for us to hear what God is faithfully doing all over the world as it is encouraging for our partners all over the world to hear of what God is doing here. We're just part of something bigger than us. We're partnered with, and we should be praying for, and we should be financially supporting, and we should be faithfully representing in our Christian living our brothers and sisters all over the world. Would we bring them honor and dignity? Would we be the kind of church that they would speak well of because of our generosity, because of our faithfulness? Because they know that God is at work in our midst, as we know that God is at work in theirs. We should rejoice as a church when churches are planted in other neighborhoods, other cities, other countries. We should celebrate those things because it means that the promises of God to save a people for himself that is diverse of every tribe, every tongue, every race, every gender will be coming to pass. And another helpful thing to realize is that as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we remember that that we're not just part of something global, which is big enough, but we're part of something historic. Our mission statement at Sojourn is that we are joining the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the historic work of redemption. And And since the creation of the world, God has been redeeming a people for himself. But for the last two millennia, he's been doing that through the Christian church. Christians have been faithfully living in the places that God has put them for his glory in hopes that their neighbors would come to know him through the gospel, just like we are here. Certainly, the the church's history is not all exciting. It's not all worthy of us celebrating. Some of it is shameful, but the reality is that that Christians for two millennia have been the world leaders on every inhabited continent in charity, adoption, human rights initiatives, women's rights initiatives, slavery abolition initiatives, community building initiatives. It's such that that for 2,000 years when God... church shows up in a neighborhood, that neighborhood is blessed by the grace of God being tangibly present in that place. And so we're part of something historic and global, and that should encourage us in the local nature of it. Like Montrose is a better place because God's people are here. Like like people are blessed because there are people who understand love and grace and mercy and human dignity in our neighborhood in ways that that the rest of the world just can't because they've not yet encountered the God who who does those things. And so Paul writes that that the churches of Asia send the Corinthians greetings, and I say sojourn mantras 
the churches of the nations send you greetings. We are partnered with churches all over the world, which means you're not alone. You're not unprayed for. You're not unthought of. You're not unloved. You can trust that. That there are people all over the world who are praying for us, who care for us, who want to see God's work done here. And so that's the first thing that this text has for us, is that, that we're part of something bigger, and that that's important. And the second two things that we should consider are two specific statements. So that's kind of the broad, overarching theme that we can draw from 1 Corinthians 16. But, but then there are two specific statements that I, I think we should spend some time with. The first come in verses 13 and 14. And if you have your Bible and you read this, it says, Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. In these two sentences, Paul gives his last true exhortation to faithfulness to the Corinthians. It's the last time that he'll call them to a a specific mindset or behavior. And first he tells them to be watchful. Early in the letter, Paul made it clear that he understood that the Corinthians were prone or had a tendency to be swayed or drawn to silver-tongued teachers. Kind of regardless of what it was that they were teaching or preaching, if they were smooth talkers, the Corinthians could be easily swayed. And he called them over and over to remember not to abandon the gospel that they had been taught, that if anyone is preaching other things, anything other than the the simple gospel that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and that through his death, resurrection, and ascension and giving of the Holy Spirit, can we experience union with God through his merit? If there's any gospel other than that being preached, that the Corinthians ought to be watchful. They ought to be on guard against it. And so Sojourn Montrose, be watchful. Be careful in what sources you allow to speak into your worldview. Be diligent in your study of God's Word so that you can filter all of the things that you come to encounter through what God has to say in His truth. Do not believe any other gospel than the one that has consistently been preached to you, even if it's from this pulpit. If it's ever said anything other than than Christ is our all and he is our only hope, then, then let us be watchful against those things. Watch out for false teachings, bad influences, faithless ones who claim Christ but lead to division. Then he says, stand firm in the faith. So Sojourn Mantra, stand firm in the faith. Stand firm and unshaken today and every day in the faith that you have placed in Jesus as your salvation from sin, as your victor over death, as your priest at the right hand of God, as the king of your kingdom. Stand firm in your faith in him. Do not waver from believing that in him you can experience all the fullness and blessings of God. Do not forget that through faith you can express the gifts that God has given you. 
for the benefit of those around you. Do not abandon the faith, church, when times are hard. When sin seems insurmountable. When depression besets you. When anxiety cripples you. When death is all about you, or sickness ensnares you, or relationships betray you, or wisdom escapes you, hope in God. Your Father. Hope in Christ, your Savior. Hope in the Spirit, your power, your sustainer. His promises do not fail, and they never will. His power over death will never prove powerless. Let the resurrection be the proof of this. Let it be the guiding light in this. Church, when your faith is weak, pray. When your faith is weak, find comfort in in sharing that with your brothers and sisters in your neighborhood parish. When your faith is weak, hear the gospel preached and take heart in good news. When your faith is weak, just come to the table. And feast upon a broken body and shed blood that will sustain you and strengthen you and save you. But stand firm. The next thing Paul says is he says, act like men, be strong. Paul is not calling the Corinthians here to to conform to a cultural expression of masculinity. That's not what it is. He's not calling men and women to all just act like men. He's drawing on a consistent theme and trope throughout the Old Testament of God and his prophets calling the people of Israel to gird up their loins for battle or for hardship that lies ahead. It's a call to maturity, not to masculinity. So Sojourn Montrose, act like men and women. Act like men and women, because the road ahead won't be easy. It's true. It was true for the Corinthians, and it's true for us. We're a young church. We say it over and over and over again, that we, we're a young church in demographic and institution. We've, we've been gathering on Sundays for just over five years, and the average age of the person in this room, I would guess, is about 27. We're young. But the road that we face ahead of us is going to be difficult. In the coming year, things here at Sojourn Montrose will be difficult. We're going to experience a lot of changes. Our staff is going to change. Our membership has changed and is going to continue to change as we send out a lot of our faithful brothers and sisters to go partner with Carlos and Chelsea to plant a church in the East End. So we're going to be a shrinking church rather than a growing church for a time. And with being a smaller church, we'll have more needs. We'll just have more needs. We'll need more financial generosity. We'll need more Spiritual maturity will need more time and effort in service. Many of you have been involved in neighborhood parishes for some time and have never even considered leadership. And in the coming year, you'll probably be called to take greater steps into ownership and leadership in your neighborhood parish simply because we need you to. The the mission of God in Montrose needs you to do that. Many of you 
I know very well are on Sunday ministry teams that are smaller than they once were and you're being called to serve more regularly than you feel able or certainly than you would like to. And, and the problem is that that's just not going to change anytime soon. And we're going to need to gird up our loins and just serve more faithfully and more regularly because, because the gospel work of Jesus is at hand. Many of you have been giving regularly, financially, but, but in the next year, you might be called to consider giving more generously. Many of you have been treating sin in your life like a pet tiger. And this year, you're going to be asked to put that to death before it kills you. Church, it's just time for many of us to grow up into manhood and womanhood. We might not feel ready. It might not seem appealing. But we must do it if God is going to transform us into the kind of people that see that the gospel goes forth in their neighborhood faithfully. We must be disciplined and faithful and mature and wisdom-seeking. But the good news is, is that God has promised to help us in this and that he's given us his spirit to sustain us and to give us wisdom and to encourage us and to see that we grow. He will surely do this. We just have to commit ourselves to it. We have to choose to surrender our immaturity to God that he might turn us into men and women marked by his gospel. Then Paul says, let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. What a wonderful way for Paul to, to be wrapping up this letter because this is so rich in Christian instruction, but it's also so consistent with the overall message of 1 Corinthians to, to be loving to one another. It's the guiding principle of Christian living that we ought to love others. And it's consistent because is that not what God has done for us throughout the entire history of him redeeming a people for himself, is to do all in love. Let's just walk through what God has done since he created the world to see the kind of love that he's acted in. In love were Adam and Eve created and placed in a beautiful garden, and in love was the task of naming the created beings and tending that garden given to Adam and his beautiful helpmate Eve. In love did God respond even to their rebellion, for he did not utterly destroy them, but he kept them. In love, God saved Noah through the floodwaters. In love, God called Abraham and opened the barren womb of Sarah that they might bear a great nation. In love, God used Moses to save Israel from slavery in Egypt. In love, God provided bread from heaven and water from the rock as the Israelites were wandering in the desert. In love, God opened Hannah's womb to give her the son for whom she prayed. And then in love, she used that son to judge Israel faithfully and justly. In love, God empowered and established David 
as a king of a kingdom that would have no end. In love, God raised up prophets to speak to his people, even in the midst of trial and exile. In love, did God give his people his son. In love, did God give his people his son, Jesus, who in love taught, lived, performed miracles, ushering in a new iteration of a glorious kingdom marked by love. And in love, did Jesus care for the lowly, the sick, the poor, the destitute, the outcast? In love, did Christ surrender himself then over to betrayal and death and God's wrath? In love did Christ breathe his last in our stead, yet uttered that the work of God's salvation was finished. In love did he then, three days later, rise from the grave in glorious resurrection over sin and death, that his people might forever have an everlasting hope in his life. In love he's now ascended to heaven and is a a human king working on behalf of his human saved people. And he sent forth his spirit in love that we might be empowered and united and blessed by all of the character and nature of God. All of his actions are certainly loving. In all things he has acted in love and so let our actions be like his. Let us act in love. Let us be marked by selflessness and holiness and generosity and friendship and loyalty, all of these in love. Because actions done apart from love, as 1 Corinthians chapter 13 told us, make us nothing but noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. But in love, we get to express the very nature of God's salvation to the world, and to one another. And so finally, let's turn our attention to verse 22. In verse 22, Paul says, If anyone has not love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Church, this seems to be of utmost importance. If if there's ever a time in the Bible where there's an if-then clause, where the then is let them be accursed, we need to pay close attention to that. We have, over the course of many months, covered many topics. And we've considered a lot of things. We've considered sound doctrine. We've considered self-sacrifice. We've considered holiness and Christian living. We've considered gender and sexuality and church order and the spiritual gifts and, and the resurrection from the dead. And these are all very important and good things. That's why God had them written down for our benefit. And it's good that we should walk in them. We should lay down our rights for our brothers and sisters. We should commit to to purity and to holiness and to love. We should commit to pursuing the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And all of these things are really important. But what Paul makes clear here in his final paragraph is that what is ultimate above all else is that we as God's people love the Lord. That we are lovers of God. For if we busy ourselves with being holy and generous and kind, but have done so apart from being moved by and in love with the God of our salvation, then we've missed the point altogether. 
if we, we commit ourselves to knowing all of these things and walking in all of the things that 1 Corinthians has called us to, but we do so apart from loving the Lord, then, then we may have encountered God's word and we may have encountered God's commandments, but we've certainly not encountered God because to encounter him and to know him is to love him. Like he's, he's the kind of God that if you meet, you're going to love him. If you truly know of his grace and of his redemption and of, of his care for you in light of your unholiness and your weakness and, and your frailty, but his power being acted on your behalf, if you know of the generosity of a God who's given his son for you, who's provided salvation for you, who's forgiven you when you did not deserve it, who's given you a, a resurrection to hope in that even death might not cause you to fear, if you've met this God, then you'll love him. Then you'll love him. You'll be moved by him. You'll be brought low because he's so utterly good and glorious and majestic that you'll love him. He's so wonderfully wise that you'll love him if you know him. And so church, we can commit ourselves to being generous and we can commit ourselves to walking in purity and we can commit ourselves to not being persuaded by the lies that the world might tell us and we can have really good doctrine, but if we don't love the Lord, then we are not the church. If we are not marked first and foremost by just being lovers of God, then we're not even Christians. And so my hope for us in, in the Advent season and in the coming year is, is not just that we would grow up into more maturity or that we would be more generous or that we would be more committed to our neighborhood parish or that we would make it a priority to be at Monday night prayer or whatever it is, because I do hope all of those things for us, but, but, but I just want us to be a church that when people encounter us, they think, man, those people really love their God. Like those people have just been moved by, by something and, and I got to know it. And, and like when you're around someone who's clearly encountered the Lord in, in a pretty exciting way and they're in this season where they're just so in love with the Lord, it's kind of contagious. And our neighborhood parishes are never going to make disciples apart from loving the Lord. And if we do, I'll be afraid of what we're making disciples of. Like our, our budget can look a lot better in the next coming year, but if it's simply for the sake of giving generously and not giving generously out of love and worship for a God who saved us, then we've missed it. And, and so that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, you can consider all that I've written, and I hope you do, but let it be clear that to be the church is to be lovers of God. That if you know the, the tr true realities of this mystery of the resurrection that I've expanded upon, that you will love the Lord. And, and so my question for you this morning that you ought to consider is, is, do I love Him? And if not, have I truly considered His good news? Have I truly considered that that in my weakness he has come and offered strength, that in my sin he has come and offered forgiveness, that in my inability to overcome death or addiction or depression, that he has provided all hope for me. Because he has. 
And that's why I walked through the history of what he's done so that we could see that since he created the world and, and to this day that all things he has done have been in love for his people. And maybe we've read 1 Corinthians and felt handicapped or crippled or unloved by some of the things it's called us to. Maybe there have been doctrines or commands that, that have unsettled us and maybe made us consider, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he's not for me. And, and I just want to plead with you that, yes, he does. He, he loves you so much that he has given you his son and that, that in this Advent season, we get to look forward to that. We get to look forward to, to celebrating the, the time when God, as this transcendent creator who's holy and majestic above all things, entered into the world as creation himself. Though he was not created, he made himself like his creation, that his creation might be redeemed to him. Like, if that's not love, I don't know what is. And then we can look at the world around us and, and at times we can be so discouraged by how dark it may seem. But in the Advent season, we get to await and look forward to the time that he will come again and make all things new so that death will be no more and tears will be no more and sickness will be no more and miscarriage will be no more and, and any other sort of thing that would assail us will be no more because he loves us and he wants for us to dwell with him. That in the end, what is said is that God will dwell with man. Why? Because he loves us. Because he wants to be with us. Because he wants us to know him. Because he wants us to be changed by him. And so church, let us be lovers of God. Because if we're lovers of God, if we commit ourselves to worship and to responding to the gospel faithfully, and, and if we commit to allowing ourselves to be in awe of his goodness that those other things that we've been called to, they'll come. Like They'll come. Maturity will come if we're in love with the Lord. Holiness will come if we're in love with the Lord, though it may come slower than we want. Generosity will come if we're in love with the Lord, because we'll be less in love with our things. Relationships will be healed and reconciled if we're primarily in love with the Lord. And, and that's not a plea so that you can pretend to love the Lord so that all these things you want would come to pass. It's, it's a plea for you to realize what is of utmost importance and that, that is simply that you offer yourself as a lover to God because he has offered himself fully as a lover to you. That his chief desire is that you would know him and enjoy him and glorify him forever in a united, loving relationship, that God has gone to great lengths that you would be united to him. People, and I dare say not even gods, would go to great lengths to be united to anyone that they did not love. And the gospel story is a story of God seeking to be united to his people. And so maybe this morning for the first time you would hear that and respond in a new way where you would understand the deep love that God has for you. And I would invite you this morning as we, as we prepare the table that you would come and express your love to God in communing with him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. 
and we thank you that you have made us part of something so much bigger than ourselves, that we're part of a global and historic reality, that you are having a people for yourself, that you can love and transform to be like you. And I pray that we would hear and believe and respond to your love by turning in worship and in love for you. Would you transform our hearts? Would you open them that we might love you more? Would you come by the power of the Spirit to convict us of sin, but also to call us to love? That we would turn in repentance to you, not out of duty, but out of awe. That we would just be in awe of you, and that we would worship you, and that your Spirit would move in our hearts, but in this congregation, that our neighborhood would be transformed because we're lovers of you. Would nothing be true of us if that is not true of us? That's what we pray, Lord. That you would make us a people who love you deeply and desperately and wonderfully. Transform us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name.